What's going on, Asymmetry? Before we get you over to that podcast, I have a quick request that I would like to make of you. We need your help. On our next Mariah in the Wild project, we are headed to Italy to document the Puglian olives, the Roman olives planted 3,000 years ago that have given rise to such a tremendous and profound culture. But these trees are facing a major, major obstacle. The pathogen of xylella is eradicating them at a rapid pace. And before they're gone, we want to make sure that we talk with historians and horticulturalists to understand not only the disease that is eradicating the olives, but understand their profound impact on culture, understand their aesthetic, and pursue a project that preserves their contributions to bonsai in the form of film. Now, we've partnered with a wonderful nonprofit called the Treehouse Project. All of your contributions are completely directed towards portions of the project so you can see where your money is being utilized to help us capture this ancient forest. Any dollar amount helps and every single contribution is completely tax deductible. Visit bonesimerai.com to see our Give Lively campaign where you can decide where you want to contribute to this project to help us make it happen. Thank you in advance for all of your support. I think we all understand how significant this project has become, and we only hope to do it more and more with your help. What is up, Asymmetry? Holy smokes, we've got a big one for you today. Um, the ProBioCarbon Danu products created by Karen O'Hanlon out of Ireland have been a subject and topic in bonsai cultivation in the UK for the past several years. And Peter Warren has really uh, touted their benefits in bonsai cultivation for increased plant health and response. But it's a very, it's always been a very sustainable conversation. It wasn't changing his bonsai life, it seemed. It was just adding to the quality of his bonsai cultivation. And throughout our nutrient experiments, I've I've had Karen in the back of my mind as as somebody that I need to talk to once I understand a little bit more about this soil food web biology from discussions with Ian Hunter to the compost extracts to the nutrient balancing of David Naus and the Apical Ag uh, team through the Eden products. And it, it was a beautiful serendipity that we were discussing some biology on a, on a stream a while back and Karen happened to have gotten word of that. And she reached out and said, I think I have some ideas for you. And um, we sat down and had an absolutely lovely conversation with her. She was super free with the knowledge. She answered so many questions that I've had for so long. And my, my hopes are that we get to experiment with her products this coming year and hopefully integrate, you know, some of some of the uh, different bodies of knowledge that we've been working on to see how these all cross pollinate and, and connect. Anyways, uh, super, super excited for you guys to get to hear this. I think it'll answer a lot of questions for the bonsai community around fungi, around bacteria, around nutrition and their, and the interaction of all of these things. Enjoy. Just getting into the office this morning, <laughs> so like we're still gathering ourselves. I'm so sorry. How are you doing? I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm I'm very low energy. Oh, no. oh no! Quiet voice. Is um, it evening time there? What time is it? It's six in the evening. Okay. Yeah. Can Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah we can hear you yeah. great. We can hear you great. Yeah. Lonnie, who's uh, okay. recording, said you have a lovely speaking voice. 
Who said I'd have a lovely sweet advice? Lonnie, who's recording this right now. Yes, hi. Oh, I have you. a terrible so lovely. voice. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm Ryan, and this is Ira. Good to hi. see you again, or see oh, you in hi. person. I thought Ira was going to be female. Well, <laughs> I get that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Defying yeah. expectations. Yeah. Oh. I think it's uh, traditionally a male Jewish name, but I'm not Jewish, so that's about where that starts and stops. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. And you are? Well, you're a girl, which is what I expected. No, Karen. I know. Oh. Karen, Karen O'Hanlon, yes? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And and um, I jumped into my question because I was super excited to just like hear your perspective, but maybe it would help for us to just know what, what you do, what you're studying, what your field of study is. Okay. I would have started off as a molecular biologist. So working on um, food pathogens and looking at the DNA and sequencing, PCO, all of that. That was a long time ago, so that would have been all autom- or not automated. It would have been manual sequencing. Mm. Uh, so I have a PhD in that. Um, then I would have worked um, developing rapid tests for them using sequencing techniques. Um, Then I worked on uh, lactobacillus, uh, looking at bacteriosins for a while in the fermentation. So bacteriosins are really bad for fermentation, so we're trying to control those because they're killing each other. Uh, Then I worked on nematodes for a bit. Mm. Then I spent 10 years doing, uh, I was an ecotoxicologist in the Department of Agriculture, looking at how pesticides affected things in the environment. So auditing companies who are producing new new pesticides. Right. And then my first love was always microbiology. So I knew that um, micro, microbes could do the same things as pesticides. So um, I started researching, finding them, and doing lots of tests and lots of studies on them and seeing results on that and then set up the company. Wow. Okay. And you're in, you're in Ireland? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And all of this research and all of the studies that you're doing, were they local to Ireland or were they uh, international in scope? Um, I did a study in Italy, um, but mainly Ireland. Okay. Yeah, most of the studies were in Ireland. Yeah, very cool. And you said that you knew the microbes could do the same thing that pesticides were doing. What what does that mean? Yeah, um, well, we knew that there was these plant growth promoting bacteria and fungi. Like people have always known that that they exist and what they do. And then when I was working in pesticides, I could see a lot of the big agrochemical companies were registering them. Um, and in the whole registration process, you know, you 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 have a patent on the chemistry and you do all your tests and it costs an awful lot of money to do these tests. And then you submit them to a regulatory body and they have to be safe and effective, just like, you know, pharmaceutical drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was happening is an awful lot of these uh, bacteria and fungi were being registered by the big players the agrochemical buyer bsf and that and then i was thinking well there's one of two things we're either registering them to to hold on to them and not let little guys use them 
so to keep them back and keep pushing the chemicals or there's something in this that they do actually work um, and then the more you read and the more you, you research on it, you know that they do work. And then you, you speak to older people who have been using this and say, oh, the organic guys. And they've been using their seaweeds and things all the time and they, they know they work. Um, so then I began to look at the, the, the names of these different ones. And, you know, bacillus, of course, was coming out all the time. Mm-hmm. Pseudomonas was coming out. And then you just look at trials and see that they're working. And then I did my own on various different things around Ireland. So for these, you, you don't have a patent unless you, you genetically manipulate them. If you do that, then it, you can have a patent on it and then you, you own that. So you go through all the studies with that. And then you see whenever you, so say, for example, Bacillus subtilis is, is an antifungal agent. So I use it as a foliar spray and it, it kills some diseases. Um, but in order for me to, to write on my label that it kills fungus, it's a fungicide, I have to register it as a fungicide. Mm-hmm. So that takes an awful lot of time and money as well. And the big players can do that, whereas the small players can't. So what happens then is I will have to say on my label, Oh, it's it's a it's a beneficial. It's it's very good for your plant. You know, it makes a healthy plant or something. Some wishy washy words. I can't give it the hard fungicide, bactericide, mm-hmm. insecticide labels. So that that's kind of how it is for on a regulatory um, side of things with the bacteria and the fungi. Wow, and it and and it was like that back then, and it's like that now. Yeah, that's it currently. So what what's happening now is that it used to be all chemistry based. So all the regulators in Europe and America, I suppose, um, would have been chemists and the whole structure of of these things, registering these things would have been done as a chemistry. So the the regulations are apply um, in Europe to sort of all of the fungi and bacteria. And you can't actually call it a fungicide. You just say it's a like a plant, uh, a beneficial plant product that increases its vigor. Is that what I'm understanding? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in the past, it was chemistry. Um, it was you know big players uh, producing these chemicals. The regulators were chemists. They put the framework in place for chemistry. Um, everything was patented just like the drugs industry. Um, but now these biologicals are starting to come on the scene. They've been coming on the scene for 15, 20 years probably. But the regulators have to catch up. So research and industry is always ahead of them. So the, the chemistry um, setup is not ideal for biology mm-hmm. so they're putting them into the chemistry they're calling them um, plant protection products and putting them in there but they don't fit in because like sometimes you know for, for one of the ecotox tests that you do you do a dt50 in the soil so you know uh, the half-life of this chemical in the soil has to be below a certain time but you can't give biology a half-life because it's meant to to live and flourish in the soil. So 
that doesn't really suit that. So what's happening now in the, the European regulatory system is that more biologists are coming in and they will put, you know, a new framework in place for the biology. Uh-huh. And that's a, fa- um, so that's a favorable thing. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and things like, you know, it's a lot of the 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 pesticides have, you know, have been taken off the market. Like we in Ireland have taken, you know, 180, 200 a year off the market and they're not getting approval because they have these labels on it. So something is um, persistent uh, or toxic or bioaccumulates. If it gets two of the three, it's taken off the market. Uh-huh. It always gets a T, a toxic um, so they are, the regulators are really pulling back on, on these pesticides and then there'll be a place for biology to come come to the fore. Wow, very interesting. I almost, I, I, it sounds like you might be, that you might be in Europe uh, ahead of where we're at in the United States from this perspective. I mean, I think there is a shift. I don't know what you think about it, but I think there's a shift in availability of chemicals here as well. Mm. The writing's kind of been on the wall, you know, as more and more regulations to be able to handle the chemicals were sort of being put in place. Even even early 2000s when I was in when I was in college um, studying horticulture, you know, and we took sort of a minimal number of classes on disease and pest and chemicals and whatnot. It was already there was already a, the beginning of sort of a major pullback. And it's can, it's kind of continued. And it's pretty obvious that. Mm-hmm biology and nutrition and some of these other things and management of the soil, you know, carbon content of the soil, nutrient balancing and the, and, and then the biological sort of loop that comes with all of that is becoming a a subject we need to reacquaint ourselves with. I think it's always been something human beings have practiced, but um, it feels like it's becoming more pressing that we really embrace that and figure it out. Yeah. I I think even the last three years i mean it's we have this you know um towards 2030 here in europe where we want to take uh 50 of the pesticides off the market by 2030 wow cool and we have um what sorry what a 30 30 reduction in fertilizer and 50 percent in pesticides mm-hmm. and these things are legally binding in different countries so we have to do it yeah. And it just seems to have the last two or three years. We, we, I was always aware that it was coming, but I think the general public didn't know, didn't see it. So the only, it's whenever they go to the shelf to get the thing that they always bought in the past, it's not available anymore. And they're like, oh, okay, well, why is it not available? But we could see this coming before, and now the, the general public are, are really noticing it now. Yeah. So, so what's the difference just, and forgive, you know, my lack of knowledge in the subject, but what's the difference primarily when you look at fungi and bacteria, beneficial or, uh, you know, detrimental fungi and bacteria? And, and I think a lot of people, you know, the most common fungal relationship people understand or throw around as mycorrhiza but i'm i'm just i'm hoping you might be able to break down bacteria fungi where they thrive how they're good how they're bad because i don't really understand that yeah i think so for the last um 70 or so years people have seen biology as disease 
So they never they never noticed the beneficial. So biology was always a pathogen like fusarium, wilt, um, mildews, and etc. on on your plant. And prior to that, I think people really understood biology, but I think we we've kind of lost it the last few decades. But um, as regards bacteria and fungi, the fungi you have beneficials, of course, and there are endophytes. So endophyte, an endophyte beneficial is something that lives within the plant. It can be fungal or bacterial. Um, they do not cause disease. Their, their presence there um, aids nutrition through the plant. They're symbiotic. Um, they produce phytohormones and lots of other beneficial things mm. for the plant. Um, uh, a plant that doesn't have endophytes, it doesn't form root hairs and the germination is much lower because there's no endophytes present. Universally, endophytes are, universally across plants, you're saying plants that yeah. don't have uh, endophytes uh, have fewer or, or don't produce any root hairs? Yeah, um, all plants have endophytes, but if you remove the endophytes, this happens. I got you. They don't okay. form root hairs wow. and they don't germinate well. Um, you have fungal and you have bacterial. Um, the Bacterial ones, there's more of them. So we know more about the, the bacterial ones and the fungal ones. The fungal ones um, can come in, especially in grasses, in the, the seed of the, the mother seed. So whenever that seed begins to grow, the, the fungal uh, endophytes wake up and germinate at the same time as the seed. So for mycorrhizae, pe people don't really understand this with the mycorrhizae. They think they can just spray mycorrhizae onto the plant after it's grown. The mycorrhizae attaches itself to the seed and grows at the same time as the seed is developing into a plant. Um, so most of the fungal endophytes come within the seed. The bacteria are in there too. Um, the bacteria endophytes can be in the, the soil. And then they can come into the plant via the roots or other other places like that. So there's not one thing, you know, people say, oh, are are the fungal endophytes better than the bacteria? It's not one or the other. They're just, they coexist. And even the, the bacteria will use the fungal endophytes as a medium to transport itself within the plant. Uh -huh. So it'll go into the mycelium of the fungi and into the plant. Wow. Um, so there, they coexist. One's not better than the other, but you you cannot you cannot add fung mycorrhiza endophytes after the plant is grown. It, it needs to establish at the same time as a germinating seed. So this is this is universal for say for example a plant is dug out of the garden a plant is collected out of uh, a natural environment somewhere it's going to come with the mycorrhiza or the fungi relationships that are are in endophytes in the roots but you can't add a fungal relationship that becomes an endophyte. Uh, working with inside the plant at that point in time as it's already become a mature specimen. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's too late. Oh, wow. It's really too late. So yeah. bacteria becomes yeah. really the only thing that you could help forge a relationship for as far as beneficial biology once a plant is already mature. 
well, you would have other fungi there, uh -huh. um, but the ones that are attached to the to the plant radiating out, they have been established a germination of that seed. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now, now mm. can those, can those um, fungi that are already a part of that plant, can they go dormant under conditions that are not favorable for fungi and then reemerge when conditions are favorable for fungal development? Oh yeah. They, they, they would be the same. They'd have the same dormancy as a tree or the plant. Okay. Whenever the conditions are, dry to dry to to cold that they'll just go dormant the bacteria go dormant too everything just goes dormant and then wakes up whenever the plant starts to grow okay and if a plant is you know in ill health um, based on soil conditions nutrient conditions etc would the fungi still be actively working for the plant if it's if it's in a metabolic period of active growth but is not thriving, or would the fungi be suffering as well? Is it a mere reflection of the plant's state of growth and health? Um, yeah, I suppose you'd have to look at why the plant is suffering. Mm -hmm. Is it suffering because it's got a pathogen, has a fungal pathogen? taken over mm -hmm. um you know what why is why is the plant in ill health and w um, would beneficial fungi and beneficial bacteria you said they produce uh some phyto um phyto hormones hormones yeah. yeah are they protecting the the plant from these um sort of predatory fungi or bacteria or or um yeah yeah okay. so so what what happens is you have so you have within a plant they're they're, they're all over these endophytes they're, they they come say they're in the soil so you you have your your fungal endophytes have established and then you have your bacterial endophytes will come in through the root mm -hmm. so what the plant does is the plant um produces root exudates like sugars a bit of protein or whatever and leaves it outside the root this attracts the, the uh, endophytes to that area because they're going looking for sugars. When they get to the root tip, um, the meristem, they, it's a process of either the, the root um, eating the bacteria like phagocytosis or else the bacteria um, degrades its way in with uh, gluconases or cellulases into the root. Wow. Once it's in the root, um, then the plant puts a hormone called, uh, puts a reactive oxygen superoxide onto it that strips the cell wall of the bacteria and then it responds with that superoxide that superoxide is a reactive oxygen and it causes the plant to go into stress so what the bacteria then do is they produce superoxide dismutase or catalase which down regulates the stress hormone so it relaxes the plant again. Mm -hmm. So the plant has gone into to stress in order to get them in. Once they're in, the bacteria will de-stress the plant. It then goes um, between the cell wall and the cell membrane, a place called periplasm region, and it travels up through the root. It then goes to wherever it's needed. So they'll carry lots of nutrients with them and they will pass the nutrients through the plant via diffusion or active transport. And the plant will take the nutrients that it needs 
and then the endophyte bacteria are hungry again so then they'll they'll come back out of the plant and they'll be ejected out of the plant via this nitric oxide signaling and then they'll push it back out into the soil they'll go out and get more nutrients and then they'll be attracted back in through the the sugars again rock so that's the process that happens rock and roll that is unbelievable so the bacteria is coming in and going out and coming in and going out yeah so does the bacteria when it moves out of the root is it going back out to feed on the sugars and proteins of the exudate or is it going back out to find a food source that is a digestion of the aggregate surface in the case of bonsai or a digestion of organic matter that is fertilizer like how, what is it going out there where is that it's, nutrition it's seeking and what is that nutrition it's it's a lot of different things so say a bacillus subtilis it has this um like a 150 kilodalton uh, attachment what was called a cytophore and this this attaches to iron so it'll go off and get metals so the plant the plant is basically farming these microbes and it's telling these microbes, I need X, Y, and Z. Off you go and get them. So the bacillus will go off and it'll get whatever's needed, the iron or lots of other different things. And it'll be then attracted back into the plant. So the plant feeds the bacteria with organic acids, uh, carbohydrates and proteins and things. And the, the endophytes give it the nutrients that it needs from the soil. Wow. Wow. And is it possible that in the plant's desire for, say, iron, that the bacteria would be farming a multitude of metals and be bringing in potentially bad metals as well as good metals? Or are they only seeking what the plant tells them to go find? Oh, I don't know if I can answer that one. Um, These bacteria are negatively charged and lots of the metals are positively charged. Mm -hmm. So, they, they would be attracted to the bacteria, but I know that the few the few that I know a lot about, I know that the the side of four is is for iron, and you know other things. The bacteria will phosphorylate things, solubilize things, so will will bring back um, nutrients in a form that the plant can assimilate. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. So it's the the coming in and out and the and the uh, communication is fascinating. Now you said the bacteria travels um, more or less between the cell walls and then enters via diffusion or active transport. Uh, active transport across the cell wall or diffusion across a concentration gradient. Is that is that what we're talking about? Um, well, diffusion across the concentration gradient is it. It moves. You, you think that the the cells are static. They're not. They're streaming all the time. Mm-hmm. So the cytoplasm in the stream they they move by cyclosis. So they're streaming. The nutrients are moving. Um, it is diffusion, but we know that in some studies we've looked at that ATP is involved. Uh-huh. So there there is active transport as well. Right. And yeah, okay. And then 
when you when the, these processes that are um, breaking down the 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 walls of the bacteria and the stress responses and then the uh, reception and and ultimately sort of the sending off of the bacteria after the plant's gotten what it needs is this a, a process that's happening in the daytime as well as in the nighttime is this a is this a nighttime uh, specific thing daytime specific thing I, I don't know. I've never broken it down to day and night. What what it is is when the plant is actively growing. So uh-huh. when the plant needs nutrients in, say, in the shoots, it, it'll say it'll go into the buds. There's a the, they can form a biofilm. The bacteria can form a biofilm and sit there in a bud. Um, over the winter in colder conditions and they just sit there the bacillus go into a spore they're not a vegetative state they're in a spore they're they're just sitting waiting for spring and then when spring comes the plant wakes up the temperature is right there's a bit of nutrients for the for the endophyte bacteria and then they'll come out of their spore and then they'll deliver the nutrients to the growing shoots wow wow Wow. So if your if your soil uh, did not have, I mean, and I know that soils can be broken down and broken down and broken down and broken down, and this kind of comes back to like the discussion of carbon uh, in the soil and sort of how it's been handled in commercial farming practices over you know the past I don't know how long in Europe, but in in the United States post World War II really. Um, does it ever get to a point where there's not an availability of what the plant needs and the bacteria can't find it? Like the bacteria can can no longer sort of benefit the plant or function? Um, that, that could happen when you're over farming. Mm-hmm. So the soil is depleted. Okay. And in those cases, they're heavily fertilized. So right. the plant will get its food in the form of fertilizer um, and the the endophytes won't be needed or there's not you know the soils are depleted of the endophytes um, so that the plant will get enough food in order to grow but the plant may lose some of the functionality that the endophytes give it like disease suppression right so that's probably what you're seeing in, you know, um, large vegetable growing. Um, you know, if there's a, if disease comes, it just takes hold, and they, they need a pesticide then. So that, and then that's why you you never see these same diseases in organic growing. Interesting. So, what when you say fertilizers um, can cause this sort of disconnection and loss of? An, an active immune system for pathogens via fertilization. What do you define as that fertilization? Is this a chemical formulation of fertilizer or are even organic forms of fertilizer deconstructing this relationship? Um, so it would be it would be the chemical. So it's not like the composting manure. There mm-hmm. would be microbes in those. But the chemical fertilizer, yes, it would. Um, th- when you add chemical fertilizer, you you eliminate the need for the microbes to do their job. So we would see in in some trials, say with um, alpha alpha trials, you know, they have this 
um, they have the, these nitrogen fixing bacteria nodules. And if you add fertilizer to the crop, you don't get the same nodulation. So oh, wow. the, you, you don't have to have the bacteria there. Um, when you remove the fertilizer, then you get good nodulation, mm. which kind of makes sense. You know, if, if you don't need something, you lose it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're just ba basically being mainlined uh, chemical forms of the nutrition that allows them to continue to metabolize, to continue to yes. cellularly function, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they don't have to do any work. The plant doesn't have to do any work. It's all solubilized. It's all ready. It's like being an, an IV drip. You're not going to die. You're going to, to survive, but you're not mm. going to flourish. Now, would you consider, I, I don't know how it's defined, but like ammonium as a major form of nitrogen in agriculture now, is ammonium a, a chemical form? Because I'm, I, I know oxidized forms turn into nitrite and then nitrate. And generally, I, I understand sort of nitrogen forms, the more oxidized they are, the, the, the more, what can you say, fortifying the form of the nitrogen for the plant. Um, is ammonium a chemical form or is that also an organic form that occurs and is, and is a part of a, a positive process as opposed to a negative process? So you mean adding adding nitrogen? Is it a positive thing or is it a negative? Yeah, nitrogen? in the form, yeah. in the form, in the form. Are there differences in the form that make it positive or negative for these endophyte relationships? Um, I suppose if if it was more in the you you have you have a whole like hundreds of different types of nitrogen fixing bacteria and they will nitrification so it's you know from n2 nh4 to nitrite nitrate into the plant and then you, you it goes back into n2 so you have a whole range of different microorganisms that do the nitrification and then the denitrification that's necessary to go back into the air and um, if you're adding it you see the, the problem with nitrogen when you add nitrogen most of it is just run off anyway so you know we, we lose 80 percent of the the chemical nitrogen that we apply into our water courses and this is another thing with in ireland we have this um, nitrates directive where the farmers are only allowed to spray 170 kilos per hectare of nitrogen onto their soil because it's it moves, so it it'll it'll wash off. As soon as it rains, it washes off. So, I suppose the, the the less you apply, the better, because then you would have more of the microorganisms actually breaking down, you know, insects and things to to release other forms of nitrogen. Yeah. Breaking down insects, did you say, like like earthworms or like even smaller? Anything with with protein in it, yeah, you're going to get nitrogen. So, in in the form, I mean, you've been doing work with um, Peter Warren um, on the use of your microbes in the cultivation of bonsai, and are you? 
seeing or or ha- has it been a learning curve to work with the aggregate soil system of the of the bonsai is that uh, a challenge or is that a unique uh, environment I I had no knowledge of bonsai before I met Peter and Michael and Ray and Ian um, so I still don't really understand the the substrate. I was I was shocked that it was so inorganic. I, I couldn't believe that it was. Um, they, they kind of do most of that research for me and tell me. Um, so I I yeah I, I actually didn't know whenever I met Michael. I didn't know that he was a bonsai grower. I I just assumed he was regular horticulture and he went off and applied it to a bonsai tree and saw some back budding on an old tree um and so i i don't i i still don't do any research on the substrates in bonsai um i produce a biochar and i say you know use it at five percent but most of the the growers are doing the research for me well, well, so, but I mean, this is like the curiosity because Carolyn Scott was just here, uh, cats mm-hmm. and, and she was saying how, you know, groundbreaking the, the microbes and the probiocarbon products are for bonsai cultivation, disease and pest reduction, uh, back budding improvement, stuff like that. Then, and, and, and this has become, this has become consistent, but Carolyn was saying something about the fact that you um, have a biochar that you and I think you've encouraged or maybe you've found that adding it to the soil substrate of bonsai creates a little bit more of a rich field for the microbes to function inside of the bonsai container. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So so biochar um, in, in trials, like I would do, try, not I don't do trials in bonsai, I do them in potted plants. So in... In use of biochar, um, you get you get a positive response between five and thirty percent. The the best response is between five and thirty percent added into a growing pot. Um, so because other substrates are cheaper than biochar, I say I should just use five percent. So for bonsai, I said use five percent because people were very concerned about. You know, changing the mix. So I said, just just a very small amount. Um, the biochar. This is the thing with biochar is that no biochar, all biochar is not the same. So some people will say biochar is wonderful. Other people will say, uh, I don't think it's much cop. And that's because of the start. There's lots of reasons. And um, Biochar is made from lots of different things. So you can have a rice husk biochar, you can have bamboo, you can have olive stone, you can have wood, you have loads and loads of different starting material. Um, It also depends on the pyrolysis temperature. So the optimum temperature is 600 degrees. And then it also depends on the electroconductivity and the surface area of the biochar and the residue time that you you keep it in um, at 600 degrees. So after that, you get, like, I would get different material and I have a chemist working with me and he analyzes it. And you, you, want, you want a high surface area for the microbes to, to live in. Uh, you want a high cationic exchange capacity, but not too high. 
mm. you know, just a, just a good enough level. Um, you want um, that the temperature that it was pyrolyzed was 600 degrees and a, a good residue time. And that makes the very best biochar. Um, but that, that's the problem with biochar because we have a, we have a European biochar certification, but it's not enforced. And everybody's gone off for like regenerative farming and that and making their own biochar. And quite often it's, it's, they burn it to ash. They're not pyrolyzing it without oxygen. And this is the problem with the variability of results with biochar. So I was using the olive stone because I have access to it. And it makes a nice kind of flowable biochar. And a lot of the horticulturists will like it because it's not too dusty and they can take it in bags and pour it. And then Peter was saying that he he needed um you know a sub he needed the biochar to be a certain size. Right. And I thought the olive stone was was good for that. But I think it might be a little bit too too small, but I can't do anything about that apart from adding water to it at repotting. So it swells. Mm. So it, it's a bit bigger then. Um but really, for me, the, the biochar is a home for the microbes because I'm a microbiologist. You know, I, I, I see the benefit of the chemistry and the cationic exchange, but I just understand the microbes more. And this is where they live. Um, you know, it's a carbon source. It might, the olive stone is 80% is carbon. Um, it's going nowhere. It's, it's in the pot and it's beneficial. Yeah. Um, now, are you when so once you create, and I mean, I'm Peter and all of, and and several of the uh, other individuals that you uh, noted were working with you and kind of evolving this process for bonsai. Um, they are 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 they encouraged? Are you encouraging them to continue to fertilize through organic fertilizer? applications as they apply the microbes or do the microbes do the job working living on this olive stone and and working through the plant roots are they able to obtain what they need from that environment yeah i wouldn't be i wouldn't drastically tell them to stop using fertilizer um i they i mean they're the experts not me um so they have been continuing to use the fertilizer. I'd say they they've got a positive response because um, bonsai has it's you know it, it it was out in the wild. It's been domesticated. It's been brought in. I I think you use you know you, you take it in the strongest survive. You give it fertilizer. It needs fertilizer because it. it the roots aren't extending out in order to get these this these nutrients. It's contained in this pot, so that's why it needs fertilising. Um, but I think over the years, the bonsai trees have lost some of their microbiome mm -hmm. um, that they would have had in the wild. Yeah, and I think that's why these growers who who are using my my products. Um, I think that's why they're getting this positive response. It's, like, it's a probiotic. They, they're getting the microorganisms that they would have wanted out in the wild. Um, I think as regards 
continuing fertilizing i have a guy um, who uses it in hydroponics and he said that he has noticed that he needs 30 percent less fertilizer when he uses the microbes he grows basil yeah and he said you know it's, it's making the basil greener um it's going from 18 to 15 days growth and he's trying to remove some of the light bulbs because of energy costs and he said that the fertilizer he uses has reduced because he in, in hydroponics you measure everything mm-hmm. and he said he's using 30 percent less and then I also read a study on grasses and they were putting um, radioactivity on the, the nitrogen. So they were able to measure how much was taken up and the the grass was getting 30% of its energy from the endophytes. Wow. Um, so I think for bonsai, the, the most you would, I, I would think you could drop your fertilizer is maximum 30 so you could probably drop it by maybe i'd be happy with maybe 20 percent less yeah. fertilizer yeah um but i would certainly wouldn't go with no fertilizing i don't think it could cope now are you putting nitrogen fixing microbes and how many microbes are you putting into your products that then a bonsai practitioner would take in and introduce into their soil system yeah, so I, I'm very kind of cautious. I'm not going down the, um, the compost tea route. Um, I'm just choosing. <laughs> that was a tough that, one. That, a that, was, that was a tough one. Still a little to know. I'm just kidding. We've been we we've been working. Obviously, you're aware of uh, that. We've been working to try and figure out solutions for that, and we've been do- going very hard in the in the nutritional discussion, but. What I'm yeah. finding is the nutritional discussion then creates a biological discussion and a biological discussion seems to be creating a nutritional discussion. So I don't, it's almost like the two cannot be decoupled and what is yeah. the right pairing? And I'm so curious about the, uh, it sounds to me like the right nutrition and conditions could create or re-stimulate growth of the endophytes that exist naturally within a tree but it sounds like there also is probably a loss of some of that biology in the containerized environment that your microbes are stimulating um yes or or you're adding them as a probiotic mm-hmm. so that they are lost and then you're you're adding um whether they're stimulating the ones they, they probably are stimulating because it still has all the fungal ones from the, the mother plant um yeah, I I think with the you see I when I when I heard that you put the compost tea on I would have done that I think mm-hmm. if I did but but looking at you, you learn more from from negative results than you do from positive results and I think probably the 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 introduction of so your plant is domesticated it's uh you know it it's it can't deal deal with too much stress it doesn't have a buffer zone to go out to the wild and get more and mm-hmm. um, it's in this containerized pot you add a whole load of different microorganisms onto it um some of them are symbiotic to that 
tree, some are not. And all trees are different. So some some endophytes are, are symbiotic to one tree and they're not to another. So you add a whole concoction of new endophytes or, or compost tea to it. Some will be compatible and some won't. And do you remember when I said that whenever the the endophyte comes to the root and it, it gets taken into the plant and they produce superoxide? Okay, okay. So endophytes are taken into the plant and they produce superoxides? Yeah. So what happens then is they, they so if you have a whole concoction of non-symbiotic endophytes that arrive at the root, of a particular tree it it can't buffer itself out in the wild it's in this containerized pot these these endophytes uh, and they may be all different they may not even be endophytes some of them they um, arrive at the 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 root tip um, they use leuconases silenases in order to get into the root uh, when they're there, the plant then has to produce superoxide um, to, to strip it of its cell wall. That causes stress. Then in response to that, the endophyte then produces superoxide dismutase, which brings down the stress level. But if they're not compatible, if it's not a symbiotic endophyte, then it won't produce this superoxide dismutase to bring down the stress. And maybe the plant is in stress complete stress and it can't do anything about it because of all these these foreign organisms that have come in. So that could happen if you get too big a mix, I think. It's just a hypothesis. But I think that's probably what could go wrong. Right, right. Okay. And I, I want to come back to something you said. You said a good biochar has a, a, a good amount of cation exchange capacity or cation exchange sites, but not too many. And what does that not too many do for the microbes that you're in, uh, that, that you're inserting into this environment? I don't think it would do anything to the microbes. Um, I, I just know that the chemists say that you don't want too much activity. Yeah, yeah. It's you all, want a certain amount, yeah. Creates a different balance, yeah. okay. And yeah. so I'm just thinking because the hydroponic grower is, has a measurable output uh, based on his fertilization practices, and then he in, inserts your microbes into the plant system, and he's seeing the same production that he was seeing with 30% more fertilizer pre-microbes with 30% less fertilizer post-microbes. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's really interesting because that is a economic, you know, that's an economically dri driven perspective of, okay, I can apply less inputs and I can get the same output. In bonsai, you know, economics of bonsai are fall by the wayside to the desire for um, usable growth production. And most bonsai growers are probably going to say, if I add microbes and I can add 30% less fertilizer and get the same production with microbes, can I add microbes and add the same amount of fertilizer and get 30% more production from my plant? 
you know, and I'm wondering if it works in that fashion where the microbes have the capacity with the available nutrition to upregulate or ramp up the growth rate of a plant. I'm guessing it's a more sustainable natural solution, which tends to not form that binge type behavior that's unsustainable and and more a product of chemically driven nutrition. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think if you were to add 100 percent fertilizer and the microbes, you would lose some of the functionality of the microbes, which, which isn't just yield. It's disease prevention, it's phytohormones, it's, you know, auxins, it's it's loads of other things that you might not see if you were growing a field of vegetables. You know, you, you're looking for yields, whereas it it has other functions yeah yeah so you you would lose it that's so interesting so essentially regardless of what you put into uh, a biological system there is a there is a, a a needed and necessary amount of nutrition but you can always go in in excess of that and you can cause problems that way more or less yeah yeah you you would because um yeah you you lose you lose the function of i mean a lot of the modern hybrid breeds of of um crops they have been bred um and they've lost an awful lot of these endophytes and they thrive on high fertilization and high yield but they they lo- they lose other things. They probably are less nutrient dense, and th- there's lots of other things that they've lost um, that the, the microbes give them. Uh, quite often, crops that have a lot of endophytes they have um, longer, deeper roots, um, and some of the modern breeds they don't really care about the root. They just want shoot if it's a vegetable crop. They want you know. Um, a big head of lettuce or cabbage or whatever they're not interested in the root yeah yeah but the, then the vegetable has less nutrition for in terms of consumption i'm assuming yeah yeah so uh and i've been thinking about this as you've been talking because these are microbes that you're isolating from are you isolating these microbes from the environment in in ireland are these native microbes or are are these can you genetically produce microbes like where do these microbes come from no so these were isolated from pastures that were not fertilized for decades in ireland oh yeah would these would these microbes transfer and thrive in an environment that is different than the weather and the environment of ireland like would these microbes have the capacity to thrive in a more arid environment that's the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> um, that's, that's for the bonsai growers to tell me. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, you know, sometimes scientists try and get something 100% right. And you could go down the route of going, okay, let's isolate them in Ireland in a 
that wet, cold environment. And then let's go and isolate them in Italy, hot, arid, and, and you know, have the Italian ones and the Irish ones. Um, you know, maybe 90% is good enough. So if the Irish ones work well enough in Italy, 90%, you know, rather than trying to have all these things and, and getting them wrong or getting the wrong ones in different countries. Um, I I don't know. Um, I don't know if they'll work well or bad in hot climates or not, but I assume so. Bacillus subtilis and Pseudomonas fluorescens are about just that. You know, they can't be that great a difference between the strains in Italy and the strains in Ireland. Um, Interesting. Interesting. Could they ever be counter? Could these microbes ever, because you said, you know, with the compost extract, we added all of this biology, all of these bacteria, fungi, some endo, some ecto, they all arrive at the surface of the root. You know, they deconstruct themselves, enter the root, cause that stress. The ones that are compatible, the plant, they they can produce the 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 phyto compounds that allow the plant to de-stress. The ones that aren't compatible maintain that plant in stress. Could these microbes from Ireland potentially be antagonistic for plants in a in a dry arid environment, or are we dealing with strains of microbes that are that are universally sort of known to be safe? Yeah, universally known to be safe because like some of some of these strains are in commercial products you know produced in germany and and sold all over the world ah, so okay okay you know they, they might call, have a strain number um my strain number is a different strain number but it's still genus and species is the same you know it might just be an odd gene is different um but i mean it's pretty much the same thing so let's talk about just sort of the ability to distribute this. I mean, um, if I wanted to get olive stone and I wanted to get uh, the microbes, do they come in a liquid form? Do they come in a in a dry form? Like how do how do you distribute these microbes? So the the microbes is this. There's a liquid form. So I have this the name Danu, um, which is it's got three different strains in it. Um, and they were developed because Michael Gearan asked me um, to develop a specific one for bonsai that would not create a lot of yield, a um, lot of growth. So I put those three together and called it Danu, which is the one that most people are using. Um, and that sprayed on the root. Um, it, it's like a, a Peter Warren dunks it in for a while and, and lifts them back out. Um, that's the liquid danu, which would be put in a repotting. The biochar would, is a separate dried product like olive stones. Um, I add one organism to that, that bacillus subtilis, and that's used at repotting, like just a very small amount, 5% in, in the mix. Um, I have the dried danu because I was having difficulty getting the liquid shipped. So... I have another dan dried danu, which is um, the microbes on peat uh, and coir, and then I put a little bit of seaweed in into that one, the laminaria and um, ascophyllum. And then I have the foliar spray one, which is called maru, which means death in Irish. Um, 
and that's for um, killing the, the, the fungal pathogens on the foliage. So um, that's the other product. And then the others are just um, seaweeds and, and fish for uh -huh. So more than anything, you're saying that really the best application of these microbes is when you have access to the root during the repotting process. It's a little tougher to get the microbes into the soil, or can you water the liquid form of Danu into the container to insert those microbes in a tree that you're not repotting? Oh yeah, no, that that's that's you put it in to put in the Danu at spring for for maximum effect. Use it in spring, uh -huh. so probably February time here. Um, and Peter, Peter dunks it because he, he can make up a basin and he just places it, his trees in it and leaves it to sit for a while and then moves it on so it'll absorb it. You don't waste it. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. So that, that's the one. But the, the Maori one is the bacillus. You see, bacillus, I didn't explain this, how bacillus works as a fungicide. It, um, it produces these lipopeptides, which, um, punches holes in fungus, pathogenic fungi like Fusarium and uh, Rhizoctonia, um, punches these holes in it and it then leaks nutrients. The bacillus then takes those nutrients and gives it to the plant. So wow. what, it, what it actually does is whenever, it, whenever bacillus colonizes a pathogenic fungus, it takes its strength, it takes its disease, it takes its power away. And the fusarium is still there, but it's not pathogenic. And in fact, the bacillus can use the fusarium to transport itself around the plant. That's so really clever. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. I, I'm like, I, I am, I am so excited at what you're doing. It's phenomenal just to have an understanding of these microsystems that are like, they're like. Uh, uh, they're at the core of the the native environment and the natural world's power system. You know, it's like this fantastic. I remember listening to a um, a podcast with Paul Stamets, who's like a really renowned mycologist, and it kind of sort of went hand in hand with like Dr. Ingham's soil food web that kind of created the compost extract, you know, methodology and 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 soil improvement system, but. You know, Paul's perspective was that fungi and 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 maybe more appropriately, sort of these microbes and endo ecto biology in the soil, really sort of form and set the stage for the flora and fauna that are going to exist there. Now, the question I've been having as we're doing these nutrient experiments is, the more that we balance nutrition in the plant through organic, uh, usable and accessible forms of nutrition. Um, the more biology that we are seeing in abundance in the bonsai container, some of it to a degree where, it, uh, you know, there's, there's so much biology, we just have to be aware that it's present and, and sort of observe and watch what's happening. And there certainly is a change in disease and insect susceptibility, which, you know, somebody focusing on nutrition would say as a result of the nutrition being balanced, somebody focusing on biology would probably say it's because the biology is is you know thriving and active and these things are symbiotically working for the health of the plant um and, and i'm curious like 
do your microbes come first and then nutrition and the plant comes second or does nutrition and the plant come first and then your microbes come second like what chicken or egg i think i think it's the plant i think the plant is determining what's at its roots so i think it's farming what's happening in the soil uh -huh. yeah and i think that's my thought I too that's really cool yeah. <laughs> that's my thought too did you think so, so yeah. I, it just seems I, intuitive to me it seems it seems really intuitive to me even if you're talking about drop pruning to to regain you know sort of forested lands that were turned into grasslands or cattle lands and like re regenerative farming and stuff it's like you're you're really adding the biology of 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 the plant species back into the soil environment and it's fostering it's fostering uh uh you know a, a cult cultivatable capacity yeah yeah i think and i think in the future i think that you know where we're getting these soil analysis done in forestries and some forests aren't taking and they're all looking at the chemistry of the soil and thinking that i think it'll it'll come from you plant a particular species of tree and I think they'll, they'll realize that the, the microbiome around that particular species of tree, when they do a phylogenetic analysis of it, will look like this. And then you pick a different species of tree, the microbiome around that looks like this. And I think it's the tree that is determining what's in the soil around it because it, it's the roots are going out and, and collecting what it needs, you know, so it's driving it. It's yeah. the farmer. Yeah. The tree is the farmer. Now, do your microbes have sensitivity to, to, to pH? Would they be more basic, more acidic, or is that not a, a non-factor? Don't think it's, it's a factor. Um, I grow them at uh ideally it's it's 7.2 ph so, oh, um, so even slightly basic yeah okay. yeah that's that's what they are um yeah I, I don't think i don't think it's a factor at all really um the the danu uh dried has peat which would have a lower ph right just the, the peat itself but i, I don't know if Maybe pH is, is a big factor in bonsai because, you know, it's, it's contained, but I, I don't really focus on pH at all. Um, really, um, you know, pH can, can be a reason why phosphorylation isn't happening. Um, and you can have a buildup of, you know, aluminium iron in certain low pHs and that. And, but I, I don't... I think the the microbes can function, you know, whatever they solubilize, uh, phosphorylate, and I don't think it's the pH that's driving it, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I would think Ireland being so so moist would have a fairly acidic environment uh, just in general. And so those, those, and I might be wrong, you know, in, in terms of isolating the microbes from grasslands that hadn't been chemically fertilized for decades, you're, you're finding these, this, this very uh, organic, biologically rich source of, of endophyte that um, is enjoying those conditions. And, and what we're finding in the bonsai container is you're exactly right. You just said it, the, the pH is impacting the availability of certain metals 
primarily mm. from the aggregate structure of the soil that allows us to do this, you know, aesthetic. The whole reason for bonsai, it's aesthetic, to, to, to put it into the confined environment and see this nature in miniature confined environment constricts the plant's ability to grow rapidly and and acts proportionally on the plant. But uh, um, that pH component for nutrient, the nutrient part of it seems to be... Um, where some of that concern is, it would be awesome to think that your microbes functioned not independent of pH, but had a, a had a fairly flexible range of pH in which they could be uh, active. But it's also interesting to find that seven point two is sort of where you're really seeing the sweet spot for for the liquid um, form of Danu. Yeah, well, that that's what. That's what bacillus and pseudomonas, that's the ideally when I'm growing it, like I, I grow them up to a cell count of 10 to the 12 colony forming units per mil. So I'm, I'm really ramping it up in the, the fermenter. And you do that by controlling the oxygen and the pH um, and you can get it up to, to that really high level. And I think that's another reason why the, the growers are getting such a good response. So if I was one of the big agrochemical companies and trying to make, you know, huge profits, I would be diluting that down because they 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 recommend that you apply these at ten to the seven colony forming units per mil. Um, but I'm I'm doing it at a lot higher and then they're diluting it down to about ten to the ten. So the bonsai growers are getting it at ten to the ten. Whereas the commercial companies are selling it at ten to the seven, uh-huh. so I'd say that that's probably what's happening. Plus, as well, I make it up in small batches, and it's fresh. And you know, whereas when you're a big, big company, you don't know who's handling it and where it's going. So yeah, and in the in the fish and the seaweed products that you're making. Are you, um, how are you, how are you handling the, the seaweed extraction? Are you, are you heating these things up? Are you doing it in a cold extraction way? And what does that look like? Yeah, I see, I work with a seaweed company in the West of Ireland and they, um, they have a cold extraction process. So the, the seaweed is, is the boiling method, um, is it, it turns the seaweed black. So you, you probably see mainly black seaweed. That you, do you, do yeah. you buy black seaweed? Uh, yeah. I don't. No, we went through a whole seaweed we went through a whole seaweed discovery and sort of assessment phase. And I I, I did a lot of research my own per, <clears throat> my own personal learning in, in this subject matter. And that's why I'm asking you about it because it's really interesting. Yeah, so um I use um a cold extraction process um and it's um ascophyllum and laminaria in it um it's yeah i I just think it's it's top quality seaweed um and then i add some biochar to that um and add a little bit of nitrogen fixing azotobacter um to the seaweed as well um and yeah i think it's it's I don't know. I need to ask the the growers what they think, but yeah, yeah, really super interesting. I mean, it's a we we were we were using. So you're adding your microbes again, and I'm just wondering: do your microbes also help buffer the potential salt um, 
accumulation that can happen in bonsai containers from you know, practical fertilizing methodologies, or even when you use these more like whole food fish and, and seaweed where they are cold extracted, you know, the, the, the heat treated boils off a lot of the chloride and the sodium. And we found that in these, uh, there, there are so many rich biological and organic compounds and more complex amino uh, acid chains in the cold extracted um, mm. seaweed. But when we had that whole like compost, when we whole, had that whole compost biology um, experiment meltdown, we were also using a very um, biologically rich seaweed <laughs> and adding even more biology to the uh to the middle earth ground of you know the battle of good and evil in microbes in the soil so i really haven't come back to seaweed at all but it it i know it is something that once we can sort of calm down the 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 waves of biology and nutrition in the in the containerized environment that there is a very very significant place in nutrition for those resources and that's you know understanding the cold extract methodology and and what came with it i i'm always curious like when we're going to get to that point where that's going to be a positive thing and i think we might be approaching it again because we're using you know, in terms of native plant material, if you look at what in, in the United States we're using, which would differ greatly uh, than the, the flora for bonsai cultivation in the UK, we're primarily using high desert species in the western United States as our, as our subjects for bonsai. And the biology, the pH, the soil structure, uh, the decomposing aggregate surface, creating a higher availability of of salts. I'm almost at a point where I'm like, okay, if we raise the pH and we add this biologically rich thing back at a more balanced application rate, which you're saying you're going 10 to the 10 with your microbes and finding that to be a higher concentration than commercial microbe uh, rates and levels, but seeing success with that in the bonsai container, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm seeing where the seaweed, where your seaweed could, could, could be very beneficial as well. Do you know, I, I, I tell you about a, a trial I did last year with seaweed. It was a grassland trial and I had nine different plots. Um, I had the microbes and one, and of course, they, they won the race. Um, but I had um, different types of seaweed. I had uh, four different types of seaweed um, at two different rates. Sorry, I had two different types of seaweed, um, but I had them at different rates. So I had... 10 litres per hectare of the black boil seaweed um, with uh, nutrients. You know, a lot of the seaweeds now have added nutrients. So everybody thinks, you know, everything fortified is better than not fortified. So 10 litres per hectare with fortified nutrients. Uh, five litres boiled without. I think that was it. And then I had the um, the cold pressed seaweed with and without nutrients added at five and 10 liters. Which one do you think was the best? I, I, I've, I have no idea. The five liters per hectare with no nutrients. Of the cold pressed? Of the cold pressed. Five instead of 10. Five instead of 10. Yeah, yeah. this is the, the so this with is seaweed, the... less is more. 
This is the this is the danger zone, you know. It's like we're we're really starting to see like common practices of fertilization and bonsai lead to. I mean, and and this has been known because in Japan they fertilize very, 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 very aggressively. Unsustainable levels of growth, incredible aesthetic as a result. But you have to maintain those trees with a lot of chemical insect and disease suppression. And when we started looking at biology and nutrition, we were seeing growth aspects that I didn't have an answer for and weren't favorable. But also, I want a solution outside of chemical cultivation, you know, for the reasons that you've cited. It's not going to be available. And even if it was, it's not the best way to go about things horticulturally. So um, the fact that you're finding better results with a lower concentration of the product, the fact that you're, the grower is able to reduce the amount that they're feeding their, their hydroponic basil, uh, and that if you ramped up the growth rate, it would decrease the benefits of, of the microbes and the endobiology that is interacting with the plant is a real, it's like a real metaphor for society <laughs> in yeah. general, you know, yeah. like we don't have to be so gluttonous or unsustainably ramped up. We can like back off a little bit and actually it's going to be a lot better for everybody. Pocketbook of the, of the horticulturalist consumer bonsai practitioner, health and sustainability of the plant, you know, the general ecosystem pressure on the ecosystem. It's like, oh, that's, this is really nice. Yeah. This is a nice conversation, you know, and it's very yeah. optimistic too. Yeah, and then even the farmer, because he doesn't have to work so hard. He can totally. just let nature do the job. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. So can you can you export your liquid form of Danu to, to North America now? Is that something that you have the capacity to do? I Yeah, I have been doing it. I have a few customers in North America, and I've got cool. it in successfully, yeah. So. Cool. And what about the olive stones? Because I do, the biggest thing I'm realizing is, you know, Akadama is like 7 to 10% organic matter in, in this like odd, oddity of a clay particle that, you know, for now we haven't found a solution for, but maybe microbes combined with nutrition or something else creates opportunities to move away from uh, Akadama or, or find a substitute for it. But um, the olive stones being an addition to that to increase cation exchange capacity is that something you can also export yeah i have uh, i i took it off for um the u.s market because of the weight of it it was costing an awful lot to transport and oh. then a, a couple of customers said oh can we have it we don't mind paying so i i did ship it then um it's just it's heavy like so so then after that my, my bags were about seven kilos um uh -huh. so i then i made it into um 500 gram bags and i can ship those to america easily enough it was just with the the size of the bags were too big for bonsai i had like a 30 liter and a 15 liter bags and you know if you only have a few trees you don't need that amount so yes yeah, yeah. there's no problem shipping it to america as well and then, uh, and you're saying between five and 30% and you, you wanted to be fairly, um, careful in the beginning of this process with bone size. So you recommended a 5% addition of the olive stones, but ha have you, have any of the people that you've been working with in the bone size cultivation methodology tried the 30% addition and seen what happens with that? 
not yet that I'm aware of. Um, I think I think maybe this year um, they'll be a bit more adventurous with the the biochar. Um, I think as well they're beginning to realise that they're not going to get the same substrates from Japan and, and things are more costly. And with the UK and Brexit, I think yeah. they're not getting the, the soils in. So, um, I mean, for sustainability, you know, that's a that's a winner to, to use biochar. I mean, people can begin to make their own biochar, you know. Um, so it's definitely if it did work if it did substitute some of these substrates it would be great but i mean people need to to try it and and see what works for them um i'm i i don't grow bonsai so i'm no expert on it um so yeah people are trying it i know peter warren is using it um Mark and Rita Cooper are using it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Pe- people, people give me feedback. Um, like when I go to some of these shows, I'll talk to people and they're, they're, they're great for giving me feedback on what it's doing to the trees and that. Um, but I, 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 would, I would gently go at 5% and to begin with, yeah. I like, I, I like your approach. I really like your approach. We've found... We've found that, um, you know, the sledgehammer approach to anything it, it has not been productive. And I think just like this slow, d- gentle integration and ultimately, you know, plants have a narrative arc that as human beings we're not super aware of and their shift, you know, for these wild plants into domestication is a complete shift of the system it's it would be like a human being moving a home like it takes a while to make mm-hmm. your home mm-hmm. in this new environment and like once you make your home you don't want somebody coming in and disrupting your home and screwing it up and you know like i i i, I like your approach to that um an awful lot uh, i was asking um with that recent experiment that you did i know you mentioned that the lower quantity had a better result and i was curious about your considerations for for timing or frequency and how that impacted the results. And this is the seaweed discussion, right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How often are you applying the seaweed? Um, well, experts in the seaweed um, say every three weeks in the growing season. The, the trial I did was just a three week cycle on grass. So I just did it for three weeks and we were measuring it. Um, with um, a grass meter reader. So you take like 70 samples over the plot and then you you do the analysis that way. Um, But yeah, seaweed seaweed is is a biostimulant and all it is is like a nudge, wake up. You know, it's it's not, you know, it's labelled as a low nutrient fertiliser. There's a bit of sugars in it, but at such a low rate, the only real benefit for those is that they will encourage soil microorganisms, a bit of food for the soil microorganisms. So what it is, it's it's a phytohormone. It's it's triggering phytohormones and triggering growth in the in the the grass. Um, pe- people who use seaweed swear by it, and it's been used for for hundreds of years in Ireland, and people still use it. Um, so, yeah, that that was the the result in the grassland, and and it's true, you, you use less. So I suppose it's not great for the producers of these products when they say 
you know, use 10 litres per hectare, but it's it's better at five litres per hectare and with no nutrients added. Did you find anything with the salt? I know that's something that we've talked about here at Marai, the salt uh, component of the fish or the seaweed and what impacts that has, you know, beneficially or, or otherwise? Um, I know that like the sodium is, is, is quite high in it, but you're using it at one in a hundred dilution. Um, so it, it's really quite low. Um, I don't think it, it would affect um, anything. Um, She's using it at it, such a different rate than anybody else is recommending mm-hmm. though. I mean, you know, people, I think people think seaweed is a, is a fertilizer. I think they think it no, is a food, you know, not. it's the purpose yeah. and the function of it is not well explained or defined on any bottle or any, in, in, you know, in any way. This is the first time I've, I, I, it was very obvious that Algamic used to be a product that was produced, I think in Holland, that was a more of a cold pressed green seaweed extract or kelp extract are kelp and seaweed extracts the same or different yeah i think in america you call it kelp okay and we call it seaweed yeah Yeah. but i mean that was like the first time and i think people really started using it in a in in abundance like they they saw a good result and they're like let's use it more let's you know and this is really the 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 theme for bonsai cultivation or modern farming where it's like oh this causes growth let's let's ramp it up Let's put more on it. Let's get more out of it. And I think seaweed potentially became counterproductive from that perspective. Yeah, no, that that's not how it should be used at all. It's it's a phytohormone. And a phytohormone that tells the plant, okay, it's time to grow. Yeah, yeah. And you said it, to it, not it use it. It triggers this induced systemic resistance in the plant. So it triggers all these genes to be expressed. And it's the plant that is becoming disease resistance because it's being woken up by the phytohormone from the seaweed. But you said something interesting, which was don't use it with nutrition. Yeah, I, that, that, that was, the, the results showed that it was better without the added nutrients. Um, and I, I don't know, is, is it that, um, is it like the fertilizer with the microbes that's unnecessary? It's affecting the seaweed, adding the nutrients. Um, but it definitely, in, in the trial, it was significantly better without the nutrients added. Huh. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Because the, 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 the thing I think about is on the, on the original seaweed stuff that I used, it said you had to have nutrition in the soil or it could cause the plants to go uh, nutrient deficient. You know, and see, chlorosis was like a common response to the application of this of this cold pressed seaweed. Now, again, I just want to be very clear that I don't see that product on the market anymore, and I have not heard anything further about those those statements. So, I'm wondering if it if if it was something that had other additives, or if it was behaving in a way, or maybe it was misunderstood, or maybe it was being what I'm what I'm assuming is applied at too high of a rate. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll send you on the results or in an Excel spreadsheet, but they're, they're very interesting. Um, and even the, the difference between we, we used another product that was um, 
chitin, you know, from fish, from exoskeleton of, of crustaceans. Right. And that, that's uh, another thing that you use to, to wake up the soil microorganisms. But that's a very slow release thing. And I did it over three weeks. So it didn't have time to, to wake up and, and do its job. So that didn't do so well. The, um, I, used, I sprayed nitrogen and I, I made a mistake. I sprayed it at too high a rate and burnt the grass, so that was terrible. Oh. But um, <laughs> thank, thanks be to God, it was grass and an expensive bonsai tree. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, I'm very careful about the, the fish with bonsai. It's like I think it's I think I say like one in two hundred dilution or something because it's very high in nitrogen. Um, but um, definitely the seaweed, the five liters, much better than the 10 liters. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, in, incredibly, incredibly cool and very, very exciting to hear what you're doing. And the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway that I have from this is the, is the understanding now, which I, I, I knew we probably had a very rudimentary, if not uh, completely false impression of how fungi and bacteria, uh, you know, begin or whether they can be stimulated to grow in, in a, in a plant and like learning that the fungi is already with the, the plant, but that the endobacteria is something that can be added and that there are some universals. Cause then it, you know, sort of, Hark speaks to the question of can these can these microbes uh, exist anywhere? And your experience is they can under differing pH conditions, um, and they decrease the necessity for significant nutrition. That the nutrition being a whole organic form of nutrition is what allows the microbes to be at the greatest power. But that you can overdo all of these things. It's just like wow, really, really wrapped up a lot of concepts. Uh, for me that I've been very curious about. And I mean, what does the, what does the future hold for you? I, you've, you've studied so many things, uh, molecular biology, and then, you know, really through that getting to nematodes and now microbes, what's next? Or is this where your is this where your fascination still exists and where you want to continue to invest your efforts? Yeah, I, I think it's it's here. Um, I I kind of I can take from various different things I've worked with and apply it to this. Um, so yeah, I, I I enjoy what I what I'm doing. Um, I I actually really enjoy the bonsai community. I I find that they're they're really nice, and I go off to these shows and and I I learn as much from them as they do from me. Um, oh. And I, I find it fascinating because I, I didn't know anything about bonsai before. Um, so yeah, I, I just they're they're nice customers. They're they're probably nicer than farmers because I was dealing with farmers before. Um, <laughs> and they pay better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I um, bet. How how um, long so, how long does the do the microbes stay good in the in the Danu liquid form? Yeah, so this is another thing that's a bit complicated. Um, in the Danu, there's three different strains. So there's Bacillus subtilis, um, which is a very stable organism. Um, it goes into a spore. I, I I grow it for two days, and then I let it starve for two days. 
and then I, I add glycerol to it. So when you starve it for two days, it goes into a spore. It's, it's a stress state. It's, you know, it doesn't want to grow anymore. And it's this really hard, stable spore. Um, so that's great. That's that's why it's, it lasts for such a long time. The pseudomonas doesn't go into a spore. I stabilize that with glycerol. That's in a vegetative state. So that's not as stable as the bacillus. And then the rhizobia I use, which is um, another strain which shouldn't really have a benefit, but the presence of it there, it makes bacillus work harder. Mm-hmm. So that could be another reason why I'm having good results because I put rhizobia in with the with the bacillus. And the thing with rhizobia, rhizobia, you know, for the rhizobium, um, they, they live in the nodules of clover and legumes and they're sensitive to oxygen and they don't they form they form a protoplast so they don't have a proper cell wall. So they're a little bit more unstable. Um so that's why I I'm adamant that you know the shelf life is short because I don't want these bottles to be sitting around in heat or traveling through mainland europe in 35 plus degrees and arriving at a customer and they're they're you know the cell count has dropped considerably so um i put on the label that from production it's four months and use within one week of opening i probably am very conservative saying that but i think i have to be because i i just don't want it to 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 deteriorate and the, the reason why it's not working is because the thing has gone off and, and you know reduced cell count so i i would prefer like i'd be producing now in january um so i'm, I'm not shipping any now um producing in january and then this will go out in february and try and get people to buy at the repotting stage and apply it like if you if you apply it when the plant is waking up it's going to you're going to get better value for your money because it's going to be there for whenever the plant is is waking up and it can exert its effect Um, the other one the maru has all the bacilli in in it so bacillus forms a spore so it's got a longer shelf life and they would have people would apply it in the spring and autumn um on the foliage to to sit there and whenever the the damp autumn comes and all these diseases come, the bacillus is there with its lipopeptides ready to punch holes in, into the pathogenic fungi. So um, the maru has a longer shelf life because it's bacillus. The danu has a shorter shelf life because of that rhizobia that's in it. Wow. And um, are you saying that basically the the Danu would be a one time a year application in in that early spring season? Um, yes, but then Peter said um, that there are there are other trees. I can't remember what they are. That he applies it again in the summer in June or July. I can't remember what it's for. But I think things that that flower later. Um, whatever they are, um, he he he, yeah. So a lot, so a lot of the growers will will have. These are the the better growers. They'll have a spring one, 
and then they'll give it another go in they call it their their summer dose yeah whatever that's for have any of them said they can overuse it no i've never heard that but they're following um, your recommendations and your recommendations are you're you're pretty conservative yeah yeah, yeah I, i've not i've not heard them anyone say that that's great that's really interesting. That's the that that's the trick, you know. The by the biology in the in the bonsai containers specifically, you can do too much. You can you can really do too much. That's what we learned. You can do way too much, and it's like yeah. this more moderate this more moderate shift, positive and positive in every single way. Um, well, I'm really excited because uh, you know all of these questions. I've had them for a long time. Um, to ask you, and you've had a lot of time and worked with a lot of, you know, really, obviously, we respect Peter so much, uh, his abilities and knowledge at Mirai. He's, he's been a great friend uh, of mine, and, and we've collaborated or just shared ideas and thoughts, and he's really spoken highly of this for a long time. Um, and seeing and understanding our, our conditions here in North America a little bit more, there was always that, is there, is there a capacity for it to cross the cross the ocean have function, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying it in a, in a much more informed manner now, um, in terms of what you've kind of laid down as a, as a way to maximize, not overdo responsibly handle sort of the products that sort of, that feed your, your endomicrobe system more or less that you've created. Do you think that standard charcoal would you know back in japan there were some growers that insisted that putting charcoal in the container um quote unquote sweetened the the containerized environment which which i've never really understood i never saw a really good root system with charcoal in the container and so i'm curious like what's the difference between charcoal and biochar and do you think charcoal is an additive that would interact with your microbes very well um, the do you know it's it, they're the same thing. They are the same and thing. Biochar. Okay. Yeah. So, in um, in a regulatory uh, naming, biochar is used for horticulture, and uh-huh. charcoal is used as an animal feed, um, which is biochar. Gotcha. Um, so that that's the only difference in the language. They are they are the same thing. Um, what was your second question about the... Well, it comes down... You just answered it, though. It comes down to... And you said it in the beginning, all biochar is not created equal. No. And so, this, this is the awful problem. With, like, the guy I, I work with, Manu Prasati, he's the, the reason why Irish peat has been so well regarded across the world. Um, he, he was the main researcher on that, and now he's he's working on like peat replacements, and biochar is one of those things that hopefully will replace peat. And he is a meticulous chemist, and this is his bugbear, is that all these different types of biochar and different qualities, and how can we tell people that biochar is great when it's not because people are using you know, the wrong raw material. <clears throat> They're not <clears throat> heating it to the required temperature. They're not producing it without oxygen. There's too much ash and there's all different problems. Um, and maybe it needs better regulations around it so that biochar will 
be better and uniform and and then we, we will get positive results yeah fantastic fantastic i can't thank you enough for all the research that you've done i mean the, the fact that there's such a scientific perspective of of how these things apply and and the fact that you know peter and this group of individuals um in the uk kind of reached out to you and started this conversation of how can we how can we use your 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 science and knowledge to to benefit bonsai it's like a gigantic these solutions are gigantic uh for us and and the sustainable cultivation of these trees which i do think you know have a lot of power um in the context that they can communicate. So I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. Thanks for being so, so open with the information. Yeah, no, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. We have too. Yeah. We, we weathered the storm of technology issues uh, quite well. <laughs> there was like very little frustration. The, we, we stayed on topic each time. It was like pretty Positive impressive. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to edit this these these breaks. I uh, know, I know. I'm glad it's not my it's not my job to figure that out. I, we have a pretty talented team. They're pretty awesome. That's great. Yeah. Anything else? Should we let Karen go? I th I guess so. That thanks so much for your time. It was really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna put in an order because I really do want to dig into this uh, heading into our repotting season and and see and see how it impacts Mirai because now that we're on the up and up and things are moving in the right direction, I think there's a lot of room um, to experiment and play with this continued continued in increase uh, of the biological community on a sustainable level on the bonsai container. So we'll look forward to working with you. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I will too. Look forward to working with you. Yeah. Well, we'll be in touch and, and let you know how everything goes. Okay. Great. Thanks so much, Bye -bye. Karen. Appreciate you. All the rest. Thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.